This is relatively prime. Redistricting in the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. If you are anything like me, you will have noticed that mathematics has started to show up a lot more often than usual in the press. We're talking, you know, Wired, but Wired talks about us pretty often, as does Quanta. It's, it's not just them, though. It's Slate. It's the New York Times. It's even the New Yorker. You will have probably also noticed that in these cases, mathematics is always showing up with one other word, gerrymandering. You might remember that in season two, the episode titled Mathematistan, we actually have already discussed the mathematics of gerrymandering in this program. You may have also noticed that that segment from Mathematistan has actually reappeared in your feed right before this one. That's because we are again going to talk about gerrymandering, except we're not gonna go as deep into the ideas of packing and cracking and compactness and the bizarreness measure as we did in that episode. In fact, I would actually suggest that you go back and re-listen to that or listen to it for the first time so that you have a better sense of those ideas that we are covering in this episode. Instead, I've actually gone out and got interviews with a couple of the people that are helping to drive these headlines, to drive these stories about mathematics and gerrymandering that are in the news these days. First up, I'm gonna be talking to Eric McGee, a research fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California. And we're going to be discussing the work that he and his research partner, Nicholas Stephanopoulos, did on the efficiency gap, which is a rather important part of a case that's going to be going in front of the Supreme Court this October. I started our conversation by asking how he first got involved in doing research around gerrymandering and redistricting. I started working on redistricting reform and redistricting issues almost 10 years ago now when I was looking into the possibility of an independent commission in California. And I was trying to understand what had happened in California under the existing maps at that time, which had been drawn in 2001. So I was I was trying to evaluate them on a variety of different dimensions, and one of them was partisan fairness, and so that that's kind of how I got uh, into the whole topic. So uh, with that idea of partisan fairness, when I was reading through uh, the paper that you and your research partner Nicholas Stephanopoulos wrote, I, I uh, first it was uh, an interesting trial for me, as I'm used to reading mathematics papers and not law review or policy papers. Uh, but there's a, a couple of terms in there that I was hoping that you could define a little bit more for me, uh, particularly the uh, terms partisan symmetry. Partisan symmetry is the general idea that um, equally situated parties should be treated equally. And it is, it is generally applied to a kind of family of metrics uh, traditionally, it was limited to specifically one measure or related me set of measures where you would take the actual outcome 
of an election, uh, which would have a certain vote share between the two parties and a certain sheet share that would emerge from that vote share. Uh, and then you would adjust the actual outcome to the point where both parties either had the same vote share, 50% each, or to the point where the vote share would be flipped. So if one party had 60% of the vote, say the Democrats had 60% of the vote in the actual election, you would shift the entire distribution of votes to the point where the Republicans would have 60% of the vote instead. And then you would note how many seats each party would get under both of those scenarios. So either you would sort of flip the votes and see if the seat share also flipped exactly the same way. Um, so that if, you know, say the Democrats got 60% of the vote they, and they got 70% of the seats, you would shift the vote distribution to make sure that if the Republicans got 60% of the votes, they would also get 70% of the seats. Or you would shift it to, which I think this is the more common approach, you would shift it to the point where each party had the same vote share, 50%, and see if they also had the same seat share, which is what most people would imagine would be fair, right? And that was, for quite a while, the standard approach to this problem in um, political science, which was to just say, if the if the parties don't actually have the same vote share, let's let's see what would happen if they did and make sure that they got the same seat share out of that. And that's what symmetry is basically about. And it's called symmetry because when you plot, if you shift that vote distribution from all the whole range from zero to one and then plot all of the seat shares that match up with each of those vote shares, you get what they call the seats votes curve. And that symmetry says that curve should be symmetric around the 50% mark. And how do uh, those things, uh, specifically the partisan symmetry, how does that connect to the uh, gerrymandering ideas of packing and cracking? So the, the idea that I proposed and then developed into a, a legal test with um, Nick Stephanopoulos is the idea of in, instead of working with this this broader range of vote shares um, through and the seats votes curve, that you would instead look at the election that occurred and see if the wasted votes are balanced between the two parties. Wasted votes are votes that don't immediately contribute to a victory. So votes in excess of the number required in a seat to win it. Um, so you know if you're winning 60% of the vote, you're about 10% over what you need to, to claim that seat. And all the votes cast for a, a losing candidate. Those are votes that don't contribute to a victory. There's always wasted votes in a, in a district-based system like we have, but the idea would be to not have one party have more wasted votes than the other, because then that party is winning its seats less efficiently. When you work through the algebra of that idea, it suggests that if you were to imagine a seats votes curve for a system where wasted votes were always balanced between the two parties, it would end up also being symmetric. It, it, it implies a very specific seats votes curve, one that is symmetric and then has some other properties besides. Um, so they are related concepts. So you can kind of think of way, uh, the, the packing and cracking idea and the measurement of it and the, and the measure that 
specifically the measure that I came up with, the sufficiency gap, as capturing sort of one realization of this broader idea of symmetry. If you could please tell me uh, what exactly you mean by the efficiency gap measure as, as you have defined it. So the efficiency gap is uh, you have this idea of wasted votes, uh, again, which is uh, votes that are cast that do not immediately contribute to wins and losses. The efficiency gap just sums up all of the wasted votes for each party, takes the difference between them, and to facilitate comparisons across um, redistricting systems, it divides by the total number of votes cast. So it's it's just a it's just a simple balance between wasted votes. And so when you're talking about the efficiency and the wasted votes, if you're talking about cracking, that would be it, what what would that mean in the uh, wasted votes context? So these terms cracking and packing are kind of the slang, if you will, uh, for for the idea of wasted votes. Uh, cracking is refers to when you take a particular community of partisans and instead of putting enough of them in a seat to win it, you split them up into multiple seats. So they don't quite, they're not quite enough of them in any one seat to win that seat. So those are all, those are all wasted votes by the definition that I was just giving because uh, they're not contributing to a victory. And packing is where you, uh, you take some of the, that party supporters and you say, all right, I'm going to concede that they're going to have to win some seats. I mean, the ideal is you crack everybody so they don't can't win any seats. If you if that's not possible um, or that's too risky a strategy for a variety of reasons, then you, you say, OK, I'm going to concede they're going to win some seats, but I want them to win those seats by the largest margins possible. And so you pack them into seats so that they are winning those seats, but by margins that are unnecessary. They could be winning them by much narrower margins and still claim those seats. And you could take the difference and move those supporters off to some other seat to help that party win over there instead. And so cracking is splitting them up into a bunch of different seats that they that none of which they can win. And packing is is stuffing the rest in a small number of seats that they are absolutely guaranteed to win. This whole idea of, of counting wasted votes seemed very interesting to me. I mean, most of the people that I've talked to about this in the past have been mathematicians and mathematicians being who we are, uh, we have a tendency of thinking about this a lot in more geometric sense, uh, looking at the compactness or the bizarreness of the actual shapes that these districts have been drawn into. And so I was wondering, is there is there a reason that this is less reliant on geometry? And, and particularly, is there kind of a law reason? Uh, Namely, is is there anything in the past opinions of, say, uh, Justice Kennedy to pick a justice not at all at random at all uh, <laughs> that possibly uh, were in your minds when you were developing this efficiency gap, this idea of uh, counting the wasted votes? Well, so first of all, I developed this efficiency gap measure as a as a political science tool initially i i can tell you with all honesty i did not have justice kennedy in mind in any way shape or form uh, I, I never imagined in a million years that all of this would be happening with the court case and so forth so that wasn't my plan my plan was just to take a look at the measure that people were typically using and point out some flaws and suggest an alternative and it was meant to be a conversation about measurement within the political science community. 
So I, I didn't wasn't targeting necessarily anything in that sense. F from my perspective, I I'm I tend to be not a big supporter of thinking about partisan gerrymandering in compactness terms, because all compactness tells you is whether or not geography was the primary consideration in drawing the district. And it won't even necessarily tell you that because all it tells you is if, if you have funny shaped districts, it means both that something else was the primary concern and that that thing conflicted with geography. Uh, a funny shaped district means something else was elevated above geography and you couldn't also satisfy geography at the same time. Certainly a lot of people think about it in those terms. They want to imagine that a gerrymander must have funny shaped districts. But to me, the essence of gerrymandering is trying to extract extra seats without winning more votes. And the proposal of the efficiency gap is, a, is an idea about when that is unfair. The basic idea being there's no real reason why parties should have significantly different numbers of wasted votes, um, significantly different ability to translate their voters sufficiently into representation. So that's a sort of a threshold for fairness. And it doesn't really matter in that sense whether you can draw pretty shaped districts or not, because the, the, the consequence in terms of partisan representation is what matters. Now that said, I think there are a lot of people who do kind of want to maintain this idea of compactness. And certainly if you do have funny shaped districts, that could be considered a problem. You can also argue that you need some measure of compactness in order just to show that compactness doesn't necessarily have to be thrown overboard in order to produce a fair plan, because some people are concerned about the issue of compactness. So for, if you take the case of Wisconsin, where um, the case that's coming before the Supreme Court, compactness is actually not really at issue in that case. The districts that the legislature drew in Wisconsin are reasonably compact. They're not dramatically less compact than the last plan. They're, they don't, they, they kind of pass the smell test when you look at them. They don't look that funny. But what the plaintiffs have been arguing is, look, we can draw plans that are just as compact or even just a little bit more compact than the ones that the legislature drew. And the map is also fair in a partisan sense. So compactness is not requiring, is not forcing the legislature to draw this particular plan. They could have drawn a plan that was about as compact as the one that they drew, but is much fairer to the two parties. And so in my mind, that's, that's the role that compactness ought to play in partisan gerrymandering litigation, or just thinking about the fairness of this issue, is did, it, did geography constrain your ability to, build, to draw something fairer, not are the districts funny shapes? Right. Now, whether Kennedy is, thinks that, that compactness is important, I mean, the, the end, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite as comfortable making, saying too much about his motives, but my understanding is that he, didn't, he hasn't found compactness to be super important, and he certainly is, uh, has worried about imposing some kind of compactness standard for partisan gerrymandering at the expense of looking at the actual partisan outcome. Uh, and so you uh, have gone through and actually done analyses on a lot of things w using the efficiency gap at this point. Uh, what what has been shown uh, through the efficiency gap analysis analyses that you have done so far? 
So what we've generally found is that there have always been big outlier plans that are significantly biased one way or the other, but through the modern redistricting era, era and by modern, I, I, I mean plans drawn after the Supreme Court got heavily involved, got the courts heavily involved in, in redistricting. That was in the 1960s. There were a series of landmark cases where the courts really inserted themselves aggressively for the first time into the process of, of line drawing, starting to sort of adjudicate it. And, and in addition to sort of imposing new constitutional constraints, there were, the Voting Rights Act also imposed new legal constraints on the kinds of districts that could be drawn. And so that when I, so I mean, districts basically drawn from the 1970s forward. During that period of time, there have, have been some outlier plans, but, but for the most part, plans have been pretty much fair. They've been within a pretty narrow range around fair outcomes. And, uh, and fair as defined by the efficiency gap. But in recent cycles, we have seen actually an increase in the number of, of what would have previously been considered outlier plans. And especially in the last cycle, the districts drawn in 2011 have been particularly skewed in that efficiency gap sense. Uh, have you by any chance looked into the efficiency gap difference where you have, especially, I know that there's a few states that now have nonpartisan redistricting commissions versus partisan redistricting commissions? Yeah, so those tend to, the, the commissions tend to produce fairer maps than than the parties do, which is perhaps no surprise anyway. The courts and the and the commissions both. Or in fact, even when it's a bipartisan plan where the, there's there, one party isn't in complete control of the process, uh, and so they have the two parties have to make a deal. They tend to draw a plan that is that is pretty close to to fair according to the efficiency gap. Now there are a couple of issues that are in, inherent to the uh, efficiency gap measure. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about the problems that it has with instability over time? Yeah, so one one issue with the efficiency gap is that you rarely have a single value for a particular redistricting plan. The efficiency gap can fluctuate because it's it's based on actual election outcomes and elections can change, right? I mean, this party support changes from one election to the next. So my attitude about that is that if we're trying to measure packing and cracking, and if everyone agrees that the efficiency gap measures packing and cracking, then what's unstable is not the efficiency gap. It's the thing, it's packing and cracking. It's the thing that we actually want to measure. And so if the thing you want to measure is unstable, you want your measure to be just as unstable as that thing. Because we actually don't want the courts to get involved in situations where a particular partisan advantage is going to be ephemeral. Uh, and so I actually think of the instability of the efficiency gap as a, as a feature, not a bug. It's, it's um, telling you exactly how much instability you have in a particular result. And so you can be more cautious about getting involved and not jump to conclusions. Uh, and in, along those lines, we have uh, always advocated that you not take any given single efficiency gap value as gospel, but do sensitivity testing to see what it would take um, what kinds of changes in election outcomes would it take to flip that efficiency gap outcome and make the plan either fair or or biased in the other direction? If it doesn't take very much, if it, if, if in fact it's election outcomes that are totally plausible could produce that change, then you really don't have a durable partisan gerrymander. So the the measure can be unstable, but I think that that's actually a feature. 
I think the, the other interesting part the, that emerged specifically from the work that I did with Nick Stephanopoulos that really sort of blew my mind because I, I wrote when I when I proposed this idea the efficiency gap in in uh, originally in a political science paper I actually was skeptical of the idea of court intervention because the efficiency gap values were were not terribly stable but then when Nick and I dug deeper into the data and we looked at more recent data we found that despite that instability there were still plans that were huge outliers and that were not likely to cross in, into fair or um, opposite party territory at any point in the life of the plan. And so it was actually incorporating that instability. We were able to show that even if you factor all of that in, these plans are still outliers. Now, as you mentioned, you initially developed this just in the political science arena, but it has since moved into the uh, the law arena. Uh, and in the a paper that was published, written by you and Nicholas Stephanopoulos, there is some talk about specific measures from the efficiency gap that were being proposed as, as potential judicial measurements uh, for this. Can you tell me a little bit about, about what those kind of like levels were and, and why those were uh, what were chosen? So we suggested, after analyzing the data, that if a, a plan had an efficiency gap of at least 8% in favor of one party. This was for state legislatures. We had a slightly different threshold for congressional plans. But for state legislatures, we said if it's 8%, and by and, and the, the efficiency gap is seat denominated. So by 8%, we mean 8% more seats than a fair plan. If it's at least 8%, and the sensitivity testing which, uh, as I recall, we, su we suggested moving the, the actual outcome plus or minus 5% in either direction. Uh, if that sensitivity testing suggested that that bias was durable, then you would have, then the, the burden of proof would shift to the state to defend the plan on other, on other grounds. That, has, that was just a suggestion. The plaintiffs in the Wisconsin case actually came up with a slightly different threshold. They said 7%. And it was based on a slightly different analysis of the data. But I think either one is probably in the right ballpark. I actually personally wouldn't be surprised if the courts chose a, a hard, bright line threshold like that. My guess is they would probably favor sort of more qualitative definitions. Like if they incorporate the efficiency gap into any test, they would probably say a large efficiency gap that is durable and unlikely to switch by the next election, which would allow the lower courts to sort of fill in the details with future cases. But who knows, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm actually kind of glad that I don't work in an area where I have to try to predict anything that the courts will ever do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm 100% I'm with you. <laughs> So I, I mean, it, I, I, I'm even in that area, but I, but I, <laughs> I, I, I try not to predict what the courts are going to do because I feel like it's just reading leaves and and who knows. So the paper partisan gerrymandering and the efficiency gap was originally posted up in 2014. I didn't hear about it until this year. I doubt uh, many people did, and that was because primarily of Gill versus Whitford, the Wisconsin case that you keep on referencing. Uh, and as a resident of Wisconsin, I am happy that this case is going forward and going to the Supreme Court. I think that gerrymandering in my state is not great. But I, I was wondering, 
what sort of was your reaction? Like, did you know that the lawyers were going to be using work that you had done? And if so, were you at all surprised by uh, how the courts decided it initially on the, I believe it was the district court level? The story behind it all is that when Nick and I wrote the paper, uh, we submitted it to a bunch of law reviews. And at the Chicago Law Review, it got some anonymous reviewers. And after the paper was accepted, the editor of the Law Review contacted us and said, one of the reviewers for your paper would like to contact you about the paper. Is that okay? And we said, sure, why not? You know, And it turns out that that reviewer was Rick Pildes, who's a very prominent election law scholar at NYU. And he had been advising the legal team in Wisconsin and telling them, you know, I think it's great that you guys want to go ahead during case here. Okay. But if you just pr- propose the same measures that have been used before, it's going to be hard to get traction because the court is sort of looking for something new. And so when he read our paper and he saw where Wisconsin sat in the distributions that we came up with, he said, you guys ought to try this one. <laughs> and so he basically asked our permission to share the paper with the plaintiffs in Wisconsin before it was even published. And because it you know, it showed Wisconsin was such a clear outlier and it was a new metric, uh, they decided to build their, their case around the efficiency gap. As it turned out, it, it, was, it became kind of part of the district court's decision not the not the entirety of the decision. They sort of used the constellation of evidence, but the efficiency gap was certainly part of it. Now, was it surprising to me that they ruled the way they did? Yeah, like like we were just saying, I I don't I'm not in the business of predicting what the courts are going to do. I had really no idea what the chances were. It seemed it always seemed a little remote to me because because the history in this in this area has been so. So, so it's been such a challenge to bring these kinds of cases. So I was obviously, I thought it was great and exciting that they that they decided to actually hear the case and then and then rule the way they did. It wasn't necessarily what I expected at all, and 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 I didn't. Uh, I don't, Nick and I certainly, n- neither one of us uh, had any intent to have it go to go this far this quickly when we originally wrote the paper. So it's been sort of a surprise for both of us. Now, uh, going forward, there is the, uh, I believe that the court case is going to be heard by the Supreme Court in October. Does that sound right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, uh, the first the first week of October, yeah. So the, the court case will be heard uh, in Supreme Court, so your work will be pre- uh, at least partially presented in front of the Supreme Court. Going forward, uh, do you have any other research going on uh, in this area, or are you helping out at all with the uh, with the court case, uh, what what is next for this? Well, so I have not been a part of the court case at any stage. I, I wasn't an expert witness at the district court level. I haven't been part of the merits team at the Supreme Court level, although Nick has been in both cases. So Nick has has was was part of the legal team. He joined the legal team in at the district court level and then he's been helping write the 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 uh, the brief for the plaintiffs at the Supreme Court level as well. So my my involvement has been to sort of watch from the sidelines mostly although I did write 
what they call an amicus brief for the Supreme Court, which is a, a, a brief of amicus curiae, which is Latin for friend of the court. It's people who are not part of the main legal teams who write additional stuff to sort of suggest ideas or, or make comments. And I wrote a brief that described the efficiency gap and, and defended it as a measure without suggesting a particular outcome for the case, saying it just, regardless of what the court wants to decide about Wisconsin, I think the efficiency gap is a good measure and it, it ought to be part of what the court is thinking about. In addition to that, this weekend, there's the American Political Science Association meeting here in San Francisco. And we're going to be presenting a paper that uses the efficiency gap to do analysis of of redistricting plans. And, and it, it's, it sort of builds on what Nick and I did in our Chicago Law Review piece, looking at whether partisan gerrymandering is has been getting worse over time. And the answer is it certainly seems to have been. But we're doing it with a with more robust causal methods than than we brought to bear in the Chicago Law Review piece. Beyond that, uh, you know, we I, I'm going to be doing a more detailed analysis of the California Commission using the efficiency gap and some other metrics too, and I'm, I'm contemplating we're we're in some talks about maybe putting together a website where people could upload redistricting plans in the next cycle and have an efficiency gap value spit out. Uh, that would be kind of fun. That um, we'll see where that goes. It's certainly a lot of what the efficiency gap is, to a certain extent, what the efficiency gap is going to mean is going to depend on what the court decides. I think either way, it can continue to be part of the conversation, and I'll probably do analysis in the next redistricting cycle to to use it for, for that purpose. But the degree to which it's used will depend, I think, in part on this court case. Uh, if the Supreme Court uses it as part of any kind of legal test, then it it, it gets an automatic pass into the uh, redistricting pantheon. But otherwise, I think it'll be kind of a, it'll still continue to be a useful metric, but maybe not quite as central. Well, that sounds like you have a very exciting few months and possibly years ahead of you. (laughs) Yeah, no, it'll be busy. And I, of course, I also work on a lot of other stuff too. So, you know, I've done a lot of work on primary reform and the impact that it has on representation and I do work on turnout, like I just wrote a paper about Oregon's automatic voter registration and what the impact it had on turnout up there and, and when it was used for the first time in the last election cycle. So I, I continue to do work on other stuff besides just redistricting, but but in the, certainly in the last year or so, this redistricting stuff has kind of taken over my life a little bit. (laughs) I I can believe that. Well, thank you uh, so much for giving me your time today to uh, talk about this work. Oh, yeah. No, no, absolutely. Um, uh, Thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're very welcome. The efficiency gap and the work that Eric McGee and Nicholas Stephanopoulos have been doing is pretty much the bleeding edge of applied gerrymandering work. But... Nothing stays bleeding edge for that long, especially when you have people like my next guest on the case. Moon Duchin is a professor of mathematics at Tufts University and the head of the Metric Geometry and Gerrymandering Group. And if I were a betting person, I would put my money on the next big piece of redistricting work coming from them. I think after you hear the interview, you'll understand why. 
I again started by asking when gerrymandering became a topic of particular interest. I, I learned about ways that political scientists measure whether shapes are good or bad when I was visiting a political science conference, and I got intrigued by that. A few years later, I had an opportunity to teach a class about voting and democracy. So that was the main spur to start working on things more intensively. And then finally, you know, the, the political climate has changed and intensified in the last year or two in my circles. And um, I think there's a lot of drive people are feeling to get more involved. So once I figured out that there was a way to take the math research that I do and put it in contact with participatory democracy, that was kind of irresistible. And that uh, eventually led you to the Metric Geometry and Gerrymandering Group. Could you please tell us a little bit about what that group is and sort of what its uh, basic goals are? Sure, yeah. So that's that's just a, a long name for a group of friends and colleagues here in Boston. There are two of us at Tufts and two at MIT. And uh, we all have math and computer science backgrounds and wanted to devote a lot of time and energy to thinking about what you might call mathematical interventions in the, the redistricting and gerrymandering problem. And so with uh, with gerrymandering, and, and I know that this is definitely the sort of thing that I, the way that I initially thought about when I when I first started looking into sort of the mathematics around gerrymandering a couple of years ago, is that like in my head, I'm like, well, this just seems like it's something that geometry and computers can just fix. Like, like can we just uh, right. just take care of it? And so is that sort of where you started out? And, and if so, when did uh, your views on it kind of evolve into what appears to be a much more holistic approach at this point? Definitely holistic. I think that's right. Yeah, I'm not sure I ever thought math could swoop in and save the day here. I do know that that's a lot of the time, the first reaction that I hear from people thinking, oh, well, we'll just decide what the right answer ought to be and tell people about it. Of course. <laughs> but, <laughs> right, exactly. But definitely, the more engaged you get with how, you know, the American democratic sausage is made, <laughs> the more you realize that you have to understand the legal framework. You have to understand the politics. You have to fit all those things together and kind of make the math work with the the avenues for change that exist. Uh, your group recently just had its uh, first conference. Can you tell us a little bit about what the uh, the conference was and sort of how it went? Sure. Yeah, that was a really cool event. I, guess I enjoyed it. We had a five-day workshop here at Tufts uh, earlier this month, earlier in August. First was a uh, three days of public lectures that were seriously interdisciplinary. We had mathematicians, computer scientists, software developers, litigators and law professors, political scientists. I mean, it really cut across lots of different disciplinary approaches to the problem. And one of the cool things about that was not only was that, I think, I hope great for the audience to get a well-rounded view but also it was really cool for the people from those different disciplines, some of whom have been working on this for decades, to, to be sort of listening to talks from each other, sometimes across disciplinary lines for the first time. So I was really you know, honored and excited to, to be able to be involved in that kind of, I, I hope, path-breaking, cross-disciplinary work. Before we even move on to, to what happens after the public lectures, what were... 
what were some of the uh, the differences that were being seen between these uh, different disciplines and sort of like, were there any moments where someone came out and you'd be like, oh, just that helps me with this other thing I was trying to solve. Like one of those moments where these cross disciplines all of a sudden realize that they really can work together. Yeah. Well, I think there were both, there were both kinds of epiphanies that at least I, I saw happening. One was the realization that maybe on the other side of the line, things are more complicated than you'd realized before. So I saw some of that happening. Definitely the math and tech people starting to realize why some of the like naive algorithmic approaches just aren't applicable to this problem in the real world. And I saw that happen in the other direction too, which I thought was also really productive. I think you know, one of the things I really work on is the idea of district compactness, which asks the question, what kinds of shapes or of districts are reasonable and should be allowed by law? So compactness has kind of gotten a bad name in law and to a lesser extent in political science as this amorphous thing that the mathematicians go on about that doesn't really help you because it doesn't see what really matters. And so one thing that happened at this conference that I thought was really exciting was you'd see a law scholar or a political scientist say, well, this is why compactness can't help here. And then the rejoinder from the math side would be, what if we remade compactness this way? Right? So I think what we're hearing is when you have a conversation between the mathematicians and the lawyers, in this case, you can come up with new, modernized, refined notions, borrowing from math and applicable to the political context. So I'm, I'm like, I'm finding a lot of optimism there about collaborating on what compact districts should really be looking like. Oh, that's, that's great to hear. Uh, now, after the three days that you said of the public lectures, what was the uh, rest of the conference? What were the, the workshops? So we split into three specialized training tracks, which was really interesting. So one of them was expert witness training. So that was 30 people with PhDs in technical fields that bear on redistricting, all getting together to learn the nuts and bolts of how to be an expert in the context of litigation or even just an expert consultant for redistricting committees or other bodies that want to think about how they draw their lines. So that was a whole lot of fun. I, I was mainly organizing that part, but only by pulling together just people with decades of experience in the trenches to impart some of that wisdom to to the to the you know techie or folks wanting to contribute that was that was a lot of fun then the other two tracks one was a teacher training track so we had over 80 teachers mostly high school and college teachers but a handful of middle school teachers as well they came in to take two days worth of courses to get them thinking about infusing math into civics and vice versa and i, I mean reports were just really great from that session so i think that went spectacularly well and then last but not least was our GIS and technology hackathon. So that was about 15 people working concertedly for two days to make software, to make plugins, to sort of do development, including, you know, get the outline started for some app development. I just couldn't be more excited about that because that gives us open source tools. Everything we made is publicly viewable and shareable. So open source tools, both for actually making better plans and for raising awareness and educating the public about the process. What were your uh, big takeaways from this conference? Right. Well, you know, we're doing four more around the country. So this was our kickoff. 
But then we're doing slightly abbreviated four-day workshops. We're going to Madison, Wisconsin, Durham, North Carolina, Austin, Texas, and then San Francisco, California. Um, each of those places is a hot spot for a different aspect of the gerrymandering problem. So I think we chose them pretty well. So we're, we're doing those workshops. And w- one thing that we took away from the Boston workshop was some ideas about how to synthesize the elements in the, in the regional workshops going forward. But I mean, furthermore, we're just gathering lots and lots of people who are interested in being part of a technical community that's on hand to help out with redistricting reform. So our mailing list is, believe it or not, we're up to like 3,200 people, which is sort of amazing for a project that started out really modestly as, hey, friends who are fellow math professors, wouldn't this be fun? And it's just, it's just gone, you know academically viral from there and we're we're really excited about all the people who are on hand to help out with different aspects of, of the project. Now as as a member of the Mathematics Press, uh, which is a depressingly small group of people, I <laughs> I can say that this this workshop and and also just mathematics around gerrymandering, both this and the uh, Gill v. Whitford case and the efficiency gap work, mathematics and gerrymandering seem to be having a bit of a, a moment right now in in the general consciousness. So what has that sort of been like? You know, kind of appearing uh, and I'm sure a lot more people than me. I, I I've seen you uh, appear, your your name appear in a lot of places. So what's that been like? Oh, right. That, that you know, not not my favorite part of <laughs> all the attention. But hey, you know, if if the attention gets some legs for the project, then, it, then it's great. But definitely unexpected, I have to say. This really comes from my, like I said earlier, realizing that the actual pure mathematics that appears in my research has something to say about this seemingly intractable political problem, that's kind of thrilling, right? Because I think a lot of where the math action is at is discrete geometry, which is in in a, a big part of my work, exactly what I do. You know, I think there's there's a lot of progress to be made here. And the good thing about all of this attention is that it comes with interconnection. So we're in conversation now with lots and lots of different good governance groups, citizen advocate groups, minority rights groups, civil rights of all kinds, and in addition with practitioners across the spectrum. So that's really quite an opportunity for us. And I hope that in particular, we'll be able to enlarge and diversify the pool of experts. And and diversify here is disciplinary and methodological as well as personal. We think we can infuse a lot of different kinds of approaches and energy into that pool of experts that's out there making a difference. Well, I wish you the absolute best of luck in doing just that. I think that this is a uh, very important problem. I'm glad to know that there's a lot more people now on the case. (laughs) Thanks a lot. It's great talking to you. It's great talking with you as well. That is all the time we have for this episode of Relatively Prime. I want to thank my guests, Eric McGee and Moon Duchin, for giving me their time on such short notice for this episode. Relatively Prime is brought to you by its amazing patrons on Patreon. If you want to help support the show like Xiao Fan, Carl Eisenberg, and Kevin Weatherwalks have, please head over to patreon.com slash relprime, or go to relprime.com, that's R-E-L-P-R-I-M-E dot C-O-M, and click the support button. There's many different levels of rewards, which are going to start shipping out pretty soon here, that you can receive if you kick in a little bit of money. 
The music in this episode was from Broke for Free, whom y'all can find on SoundCloud or in the show notes for this episode on RailPrime.com. If you have any feedback or you just want to say hi, you can email me, samuelacmescience.com. Received a couple this month. It was great to hear from y'all. And I'm sad to say I have no favorite equations to share with you, as no one left any new Apple Podcast reviews. Please help fix this for next month by leaving a review which tells me your favorite equation or number or theorem or anything mathematical, and I will be sure to give it a shout out. Reviews help bump the show up in Apple rankings, which really are the best way for more people to find this show. So please help. Finally, Relatively Prime is licensed with a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license. So please feel free to remix my voice to say whatever you like, as long as you say that those words originally came from Relatively Prime. Thank y'all so much for listening, and have a math week. <laughs>